sharing. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew 28. We want to look at verses 1 through 10 this morning, the resurrection of our Lord. Lord, again, we thank you for your, your awesomeness. Everything about you is awesome. And uh, we celebrate as we are gathered here on the first day of the week, once again, in honor of our risen Lord. Give me grace to teach now. Use it for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A note on the overhead, we have the uh, outline of the book of Matthew. We're coming to the end here, but uh, the theme is Christ the King. Uh, We have various lines of evidence to present him as the Messiah King of Israel. Various lines of credentials. But then it builds to the rejection. In the middle of the book, the rejection of their Messiah. And that leads us to the cross. And then to the resurrection where we find ourselves in chapter 28. In Matthew 27, we noted at length the events surrounding the death and burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. We now come to the resurrection of Christ in Matthew 28. The resurrection is properly called the greatest miracle in the history of the world. It serves to prove all the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is so basic and foundational that without faith in the resurrection, one cannot be a Christian. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All four Gospels agree on the basic facts of the resurrection, but they do give a great variety of details that serve to supplement rather than contradict each other. Uh, Note this quote from Wycliffe. uh, The substantial agreement of the four narratives, coupled with a wide variety of details and viewpoints, demonstrates their truthfulness and yet their independence of one another. So that's a good statement. Let's pick it up. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. Now, these two Marys were tenacious in their devotion to Jesus. We see them at the cross, as we saw in 2756. We see them opposite of the tomb when Jesus was buried, 2761. And here we find them early on resurrection morning coming to the tomb. Now we find in the other Gospels that they were also accompanied with other women who were bringing spices to further anoint the body of Jesus as a means of showing proper honor for the dead. Now they came early. It was at the the, the break of dawn. Uh, You know, I guess this is why uh, some have sunrise services. Uh, I would point out that we don't know when Jesus was uh, risen, perhaps much earlier in in the night. But anyway, uh, according to Jewish reckoning, the day ended at sunset and a new day began at the same time. So Saturday night at sunset, by our reckoning, was actually the start of Sunday, according to the Jewish calendar. Now, we don't know, as I say, the precise timing of when Jesus rose from the dead, But it was obviously sometime in the night, early on Sunday, the first day of the week. He was already gone uh, from the tomb as these women showed up early in the morning as the day had just begun. Now, remember, the Jews often counted even part of a day as the whole day. So Jesus was in the tomb late on Friday and then rose again early on Sunday, 
allowing for the fulfillment of being raised from the dead on the third day. So again, uh, we note our little chart here. Uh, late Friday, I mean, within the, last, uh, within the last couple hours or so, maybe the last hour, he was uh, placed in the tomb before dusk. Had to be uh, before dusk to get Friday represented in there. And then Saturday's in the tomb. They called for the guard, you know, uh, the seal. And then Sunday, uh, early, but then he uh, rises, uh, you know, I don't know, soon after dawn. Uh, we're not sure, totally sure exactly when it was, but early on Sunday. Now, a footnote here. Apparently, these women did not know that Pilate had appointed a Roman guard and seal on Saturday. I mean, they knew what had happened Friday, but they didn't know about Saturday. Everybody's hunkered down. It's the Sabbath. Nothing moves on the Sabbath. So they naively think, evidently, that they can just go to the tomb and do their thing. I mean, if there's a Roman guard there, you're not, you're not going in. But they evidently didn't even know there was a Roman guard there. I mean, this happened Saturday. Evidently, as the women were on their way to the tomb, the events of verses 2 through 4 took place, meaning they occurred before the women actually arrived at the tomb. Verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake, not a minor one, a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Now this happened not to let Jesus out, but to let the witnesses in to see that the body of Jesus Christ was gone. Jesus in his resurrection body could go right through a wall, as seen in John 20. Uh, there we find the disciples hiding behind locked doors, and suddenly Jesus just appeared in their midst. I mean, he didn't have to knock. Somebody's at the door. You would get it? No, no. He didn't knock. He just came right through the wall, right into the room, and suddenly appeared there. In his glorified body, he could just supernaturally come right through the grave clothes, right through uh, the wall of the tomb, right through the wall of the room where the disciples were. Well, at the time of Christ's death, there was an earthquake. And now on resurrection morning, there was a great earthquake in conjunction with an angel of the Lord rolling back the stone from the entrance of the tomb. Now, it was like uh, the earthquake, in effect, was a drum roll to announce that the tomb is empty with an angelic assistant who allowed everyone to see in. And look at the angel. Look at him there. He's just sitting there on this massive stone like it was no big deal for him to move it. I'm not sure if he had a smile on his face or what, but he's just sitting there. He was not intimidated by the uh, Roman guard. <clears throat> I showed no regard for the Roman governor's order that it be sealed or for the priestly man uh, that uh, it have the most secure guard. Heaven overruled both Jerusalem, the religious leaders, and Rome, the civil leaders. Nothing in the world could stop this from happening. This was the third day. This was resurrection day. No power in the world can stop resurrection power. This is God Almighty's power. Verse 3. His countenance was like the lightning, was like lightning, and his clothes as white as snow. Angelic glory, reflective of heavenly glory, of God's glory, 
is described here as being like lightning. Uh, you know, uh, they tell you when somebody's welding, you know, it's, it's such a bright light. You, you don't want to look at that, right? I mean, it could blind you. Uh, I can't imagine uh, what their lightning appearance was like. We get a little feel for it here. Uh, the angel's appearance was as dazzling as lightning, and his garment was white as snow. It was bright and glorious, and it freaked out these rugged Roman guards. It really freaked them out of their minds. And it says in verse 4, And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The appearance of the angel so traumatized the guards, these Roman guards, that they shook like a leaf out of fear of him and became like dead men. I mean, this means that they passed out and became unconscious. They were so terrified that they fainted. And it would seem that this was the experience of all of them. We're not sure. Uh, they said to make the guard as secure as possible. Normally, a Roman guard was either four uh, all the way up to 16 men, as secure as possible. You might want to bring out 16 men for this big job. I mean, after all, it's a dead corpse. You can't be too careful, you know. But uh, this was evidently the experience of all of them. Notice it says, the guards, plural, shook for fear and became like dead men. The word shook is the same basic root word as translated earthquake in verse 2. It's the Greek word seismos, from which we get the English word seismic, referring to earthquake activity or tremendous shaking. I mean, they were just shaking. I mean, you can't imagine how bad they were shaking before they passed out. They were fearful and terrified to the point of being totally overwhelmed. And these were known as men of great courage who were not afraid of anything. There's great irony here, really. These living humans became as corpses who were put in charge of guarding the corpse of the one who claimed to be the resurrection and the life. In this scene, death was overwhelmed by life. Life is all-powerful triumphing over the grave itself. Jesus said, I am the life. You know, that's a claim to be God. As only God is the source of life. To claim that you are life is an amazing claim. God is life and life eternal. And the most amazing thing is that now as believers, we now share in this life. To say you have eternal life is to say you now share in God's life, that you now share in resurrection life. It's more than just eternal in duration. Yes, it is that. But it's more than that. It is to now share in the very quality of God's life, which is eternal. To experience His love, His joy, His peace in fellowship with Him. Great summary statement from the book of 1 John. This is the testimony. What does God have to say? What's God on record as saying? This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And where do you find this life? You find it in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. It all comes down to this. If you have Jesus, you have His life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. 
I write these things to you who believe. There's the whole issue. To you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That's who He is. That you may know that you have eternal life. Well, as believers, we now have the resurrection life of Christ living in us. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Paul said his desire was to know Him and the power of His resurrection. To live out resurrection power is to live the Christ-filled life, otherwise known as the Spirit-filled life, which is exhibited in the fruit of the Spirit. Ephesians 3.20, Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. It's really awesome to think about. Now we have no idea the greatness of the power that is associated with resurrection power. It has the power to raise the dead. We see a little glimpse of this otherworldly power even in the presence of the angel who descended from heaven. That's where he came from. He's representing heaven at this point. Who descended from heaven to roll back the stone. Now angels are not God. But they do live in God's presence. And as such are awesome in their glory. As they really reflect Uh, a little bit of God's glory. In the book of Revelation, John saw an angel. And it was so overwhelming that he felt compelled to worship. Note this, Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Don't worship me. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. draws the focus to Jesus. And then again, I mean, okay, you'd think after the first time we wouldn't have this problem again. But look, Revelation 22. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. John's just having a a problem. Uh, Then he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Angels are not to be worshipped. They are simply the servants of God. But John had a terrible time not being overwhelmed by their presence, even to the point of feeling compelled to worship. Repeatedly, the angel had to tell him not to do that because worship is to be directed only to God. Now, a footnote here. In Luke 24, 4, and also John 20, verse 12... Uh, we have stated there that there were actually two angelic beings who were on the scene. There's really no contradiction uh, because you see, where you have two, you always have one, right? Yes. I mean, I'm just being logical here, right? Where you have two, you always have one. Uh, Perhaps Matthew mentioned only the one because he focused on the one who did the speaking, seems that there's really one who is the, the speaker. But there were actually two who were present. Well, having given the background with the women on their way to the tomb, the ensuing earthquake, and the angel rolling back the stone, and the traumatic experience of the guards, the narrative now focuses on the women who have shown up at the tomb. Verse 5. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. 
Now, I love it that the first message on resurrection morning was, do not be afraid. Imagine if he'd said, be terrified. (laughs) No, do not be afraid. And note this message was directed to the women who were devoted to Christ and not to the guards doing the business of Rome and of the religious leaders. Now, the world should be very much afraid. Be very much afraid. I mean, you should be terrified out of your minds like the guards. But believers don't have to be afraid. The message really is directed to the believers here. In fact, we saw what what happened to the guards, and I don't think the angel would say, don't be afraid, guys. (laughs) Come to, come back here, and don't be afraid. No, no, we don't see that message directed to the guards. Jesus said this, Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. It's so human to be afraid. Even as God's people, we so often struggle with this. Uh, 1 John 4.18 says, Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, and it does. In 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. We are to fear God in a healthy way, in, a sense, in the sense of reverence. But God does not want his children to be terror-stricken in the sense of craven fear and torment. The angel first refers here, after saying, do not be afraid, he first refers to the historical fact of Christ's crucifixion. Indeed, he was crucified. This is an established historical fact as noted at length in chapter 27. This is the one whom the women came looking for, the crucified one. A footnote here. It is amazing that God chose to have women be the first witnesses to the fact of the resurrection. This serves to show the truthfulness of the Bible. The Holman Christian Study Bible has this note. Uh, Since the ancients did not view women as trustworthy, a writer who made up an account, I mean, they weren't allowed to testify in a court of law, Uh, But uh, a writer who made up an account designed to convince readers of Jesus' resurrection would not have made women the first witnesses of the resurrection. That Matthew included the women confirms that he was faithful to record actual events, even if they would be seen as discreditable by society. God's ways are not our ways. They're always higher than our ways. On resurrection morning, there was a lot of activity around the tomb, lots of coming and going. As we compare the Gospels, it would appear that uh, Mary Magdalene ran off as soon as she saw the stone was rolled away. Now, she assumed, as, as reported back to Peter and John, she assumed that someone had taken the body of the Lord out of the tomb. As she reported back to Peter and John, as seen in John 20, verses 1 and 2. Now, this would indicate that Mary Magdalene left before the angelic announcement that Christ is risen, as seen here in verse 6. Now, the other women reacted more slowly, responding to the instruction of the angel, listening to the angel, and then responding to the instruction of the angel before they ran to tell the disciples. Well, at this point, the speaking angel said to the women who remained, verse 6, he is not here. For he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Now the angel said, I know you're looking for Jesus, but he's not here. 
And here's the explanation. He is risen, just as he said. This happened exactly as Jesus said it would happen. Now, Jesus had repeatedly predicted this. It really should not have been a surprise. Oh, my goodness. I'm sure all these disciples later look back and say, man, we really weren't listening too closely, were we? I mean, he repeatedly, just as, as a sample, uh, here in Matthew 16, 21, from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised, drum roll please, the third day. Matthew 20, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles, to mock and to scourge and to crucify. Drum roll please. And the third day, he will rise again. It should not have been a secret. It's the third day. Jesus had very clearly and explicitly told them he would rise the third day. And it happened exactly, as the angel points out, as he said. Everything happened exactly as Jesus said it would happen. Every last detail The whole life and ministry of Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, both as seen in the Old Testament as well as prophecy given by Jesus himself during his earthly ministry. As Revelation 19.10 says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You want to know what prophecy is all about? It says right there, the testimony of Jesus is what prophecy is all about. It has Jesus as its ultimate theme. It all points to Jesus in one form or another. He is the center and the theme of all prophecy. And so the angel said, come, come, come. I I, I want to show you more closely. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Here's where he was, but he's not here anymore. And what did they see in the tomb? Nothing but grave clothes. Can you imagine uh, the amount of activity that's mentally going on in their heads at this point? I mean, things are firing. And were these grave clothes disturbed? I mean, to get somebody out of 75 pounds worth of sticky, half-dried gauze and goo and what all these spices and stuff was sticky as the dickens and dried after three days. Would you expect somebody to, to get somebody out of that if they're taking the body? And by the way, why are you wanting to get it out of there? Why don't you just take the whole thing wrapped? Uh, But it would have left a major mega mess with everything in disarray. But no. As seen in John 20, verses 5 through 7, the grave clothes were neatly lying there. Even the face cloth that had been wrapped around his head was neatly folded and put in a place apart from the cocoon of the grave clothes. How could somebody get a body neatly out of the grave clothes without major tearing them apart? Impossible! The only logical explanation is that somehow the body was supernaturally removed. It was like the body had just supernaturally come right out of the grave clothes and then Somehow, somebody neatly took the the face covering, folded it up, and set it over here very neatly, all by itself. John Phillips says, The empty tomb 
is the great apologetic of the resurrection. And it separates Christianity from the world's other religions. None of the false faiths have a true answer to the terrible reality of death. Christianity invites the world to come. Come and look at the empty tomb. Confucius tomb, yep, occupied. Buddha's tomb, yeah, occupied. Muhammad's tomb, occupied. Jesus' tomb, empty. We're going to dwell on this next time. But note this, it's empty. Verse 7, And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. The angel further instructed the women to go quickly, to tell the disciples that Jesus was risen, and he would meet them in Galilee. Now this is exactly what Jesus had told them before he was crucified. Remember back in chapter 26, Verse 32, after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. I mean, this is, the, this is an ongoing theme now. Now, this does not preclude the idea that Christ would see some of them before then, as happened even later that very same day. But a point is being made in relation to Galilee, which would be the place of a major reunion with Christ and his people following the resurrection. This was great news. They were going to see Jesus again. He was going to make an appearance in Galilee. David Gazik says, conceivably, the angel might have said, he is risen and has ascended to heaven. Well, that would have been better than knowing he was dead, but the truth was far better. He was risen and risen to have and continue a real relationship with his disciples like, well, he, he's, he's risen and, and he's gone. You're never going to see him again. Nope. He's very much alive and he's going to appear. He's going to show up in Galilee. It's going to be a great meeting there. A real living relationship with Jesus was to continue and they would see him firsthand in Galilee. Now, note that the come see in verse 6 was followed by the go quickly and tell of verse 7. You see, resurrection news is for sharing. Once you know the truth, then you're responsible to tell others. As we break down what the angel said, he basically said five things. Uh, Note here. Verse 5, do not be afraid. Verse 6, he is not here, for he is risen as he said. Verse 6, come and see the place where the Lord lay. Verse 7, go quickly and tell his disciples. And again in verse 7, he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. This, is, this was uh, what the angel, uh, the message that the angel delivered. Verse 8, okay, verse 8. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. You know what? He didn't have to tell them twice. I mean, they went flying out of that tomb. Can you imagine? I'm not sure how they did in track events prior to this, but I'm pretty sure they were winning the race today. They went flying out of that tomb with the glorious message of the risen Lord. I mean, the first evangelists, they're on their way to tell them. They're running. And they had a mixture of emotions, as you can imagine, involving fear and great joy. In verse 5, the angel said, Do not be afraid, but being human, being in the presence of the supernatural, gives us fear, as it is so awesome. 
But yet the reality of fear was also mingled with great joy over the truth of the empty tomb and the announcement that he is risen and they would see him again. So with this mixture of high-octane emotions, these women went running off breathlessly into the crisp air of the early morning shadows. Verse 9, And as they went to tell his disciples, Behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Wow! As they ran with great haste to tell the disciples, suddenly Jesus met them in the way with the greeting of rejoice. Now you talk about a shock to the system. I mean, they went to the tomb to see a dead body, but shocked they met angels and found the tomb empty. They ran to tell the disciples and shock they met Jesus. Now I don't know how many shocks their hearts could take, but this was a shocking morning like no other. Putting it all together, it seems that the unfolding of events went something like this. Now, you know, you put it all together, it's a little foggy at certain points. But uh, the women found the stone rolled away. Mary Magdalene ran to tell Peter and John. The other women were told by the angel that Jesus is risen. They run to tell the disciples. John and Peter run to the tomb with Mary Magdalene following. Jesus meets uh, with Mary Magdalene who lingered at the tomb. And then Jesus met with the women who ran to tell the disciples. Like I say, there's a flurry of activity around the empty tomb on resurrection morning. Now, uh, the empty tomb was the center of attention. Mark 16.9 says that Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene, and then we find he appeared to these other women. But we have a very definitive statement that he first appeared to Mary Magdalene. The devotion of these women, it seems to me, was very precious to the Lord. I mean, they were last at the cross. They were first to the tomb on resurrection morning. I perhaps should be preaching this on Mother's Day, but it's Father's Day. Of course, truth is truth all the time. Mary Magdalene sought the Lord most earnestly, and she was rewarded by being the very, very first person to see the risen Lord. Now, we talk about the apostles and their great role, and admittedly, (laughs) it was great in terms of their role. But don't forget about these women. I mean, they were honored first in terms of seeing the risen Lord. What an honor! Now, by the faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The love and devotion of these women was stand out. And the Lord honored them in this way. When Jesus met them, he greeted them with rejoice. Now, this was a common greeting, very similar to saying greetings. And in fact, it is so translated this way in, for example, uh, Matthew 26, 49, and, and depending on your translation, maybe even here. Still, the literal word, the very literal meaning of the word means rejoice. And that is especially fitting on this resurrection morning as the risen Christ greets these women. This was certainly a time of great joy and rejoicing. Now, Jesus did not formally introduce himself. He didn't say, you know, I'm looking a little glorified this morning and I just want you to know I'm Jesus. No, he didn't formally introduce himself for they clearly recognized him for who he was. Didn't have to introduce himself. 
In his glorified state, Jesus still maintained his basic identity and they still recognized him. And his glorified body was not just spiritual, but material, physical, and touchable. Uh, the New Testament makes a major point of this. For example, in 1 John 1, 1, John writes, that which was from the beginning. I mean, the eternal one. Uh, from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. Concerning the word of life. The risen Christ was a totally real human being. In the resurrection, Jesus got his body back. But now it was in glorified form. This body was still physical. But now it could do supernatural things, as a normal body could never do. And one day in the resurrection, our bodies will be transformed to be of the very same nature as Christ's glorified body. Your body has a future, a glorified future, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, we read, Our citizenship is in heaven. I mean believers. I hope you have dual citizenship. Okay. Most important thing is you certainly have a citizenship in heaven. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what are we waiting for him to, to do? We're waiting for him to come. And what's he going to do when he comes? Who will transform our lowly body? You know these bodies are lowly, they're humble, they're breaking down, have all kinds of problems. That's why you need a doctor, right? We need doctors. We need medicine. Uh, we got all kinds of problems. We're breaking down, all of us. You come to maturity, you start breaking down. We have lowly bodies. You say, well, I'm not getting older, I'm getting better. Yeah, you're self-deceived. No, no, you're getting worse. We all are. We live in lowly bodies that are breaking down. But... When the Lord comes, what's going to happen? He's going to transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body. According to the working by which He is able, He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Wow, what a day that's going to be. Well, these women then came and held Him by the feet and worshipped Him. We see the same response. Well, Lord willing, we'll see it later uh, in, at the end of the chapter in verse 17 when the disciples later meet with Jesus in Galilee. They worship him there too. The word worship literally means to kiss or bow before. In worship, we bow before Jesus as our God master. That's the idea of worship, to bow before the superior one. Appropriately, these women on Resurrection Sunday were at the feet of Jesus in the position of worship. This is really the equivalent response to when Doubting Thomas, upon seeing the risen Lord, said to him, My Lord and my God. This is witness to the deity of Jesus, as only God is to be worshipped. When Jesus was tempted by the devil, he quoted Old Testament scripture saying, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. This is the appropriate response to the truth of the risen Lord. It really is a saving faith response to worship him and recognizing him as my Lord and my God. This is what it truly means to believe in the risen Lord in a saving way. It's the essence of saving faith as seen in Romans 10, 9. We read there, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
You see, to really believe in him as the risen Lord is to believe in him as the Lord Jesus. That's who he is. It's not just a matter of intellectually believing the facts, but in the heart, personally embracing the truth of the risen Lord and what that means. It means accepting him as Lord God, as proven in the resurrection. It means being a true worshiper. Let me ask you, are you a true worshiper of Jesus? Is he truly your God master in your heart? The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. To call on him as Lord is to from the heart recognize him to be your Lord and to be a true worshiper. Verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Now, I love this. The very first message of the risen Lord to these women was do not be afraid. It's like there's a theme here. I mean, the angel in verse 5 said, do not be afraid. And now Jesus says the very same thing. Do not be afraid. How wonderful that Jesus comes to his own with a message of calming our fears. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. You are with me. All is well in the resurrection. We don't have to be afraid. Jesus tells us to not be afraid. Jesus then told them to go and tell his brethren to go to Galilee. And there they would see him. Now, brethren here is probably general. I don't think it's only in reference to the disciples, but general. Uh, those who are followers of Jesus Christ generally. Once again, we see this emphasis on meeting Jesus in Galilee. Jesus emphasized it before the crucifixion, as we have noted. The angel said it in verse 7. And now Jesus in the resurrection again says it here in verse 10, referencing this meeting, this future meeting in Galilee. The sense is that there's going to be a very special meeting with Jesus in Galilee. Jesus emphasized it. And the idea here, at this special meeting, uh, it's going to be very special, and to spread the word to the brethren. Let everybody know, let all the brethren know there's going to be a special meeting in Galilee. Tell everyone to meet me there. You know, it's sort of like when a man announces, and uh, forgive the, you know, there's no parallel here in, in a lot of ways, but just to try to illustrate a little bit. It's sort of like when a man announces that he's running for president. And currently, there is no lack of them. But when they do so, they generally spread the word to all their insiders that there's going to be a special announcement at a special place. And they encourage everyone to be there. It might be at a capital where they have served. It might be at a presidential library or some other prominent forum that is closely identified with them. You understand, the stopping grounds for Jesus' public ministry had been Galilee. I mean, he spent 85% of his public ministry in Galilee. It's very significant that this special meeting would not be in Jerusalem, you know, the epicenter of Israel. No, rather it would be in Galilee, which was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. 
Matthew 4, 15, and 16. It was called Galilee of the Gentiles because it was the border between Israel. It was the entry place to the land of the Gentiles, both directions. It would be in this context of Galilee of the Gentiles that Jesus would have this special meeting with all of his brethren to announce, drum roll please, the post-resurrection mission. It would be there that Jesus would meet with over 500 followers and give what we commonly call the Great Commission as recorded in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This commission would not merely have Israel in view, but would have all the nations in view. The new mission would be to go and make disciples of all the nations. We see the importance of this in all the groundwork that is being laid for this special meeting in Galilee. I mean, the way is being prepared for the giving of the Great Commission. Now, there are three great emphases in our study today in Matthew 28, 1 through 10. First, there's an emphasis on the empty tomb with the clear ramification that the Lord is risen, even as announced by the angel. The tomb of Christ is famous because of what it does not contain, right? That's right. And then there's an emphasis that the risen Lord is to be worshipped. And he is by true followers. Those who truly know him, to know him is to worship him. It's the first, really, saving faith is first and foremost an act of worship as you recognize him for who he is and what he's done as our all-sufficient Savior. And finally, there's an emphasis on this coming meeting with the Lord in Galilee. The resurrection emphasizes three main points. First, it validates all the claims that the Lord Jesus Christ made. In Matthew 12, when the religious leaders demanded more signs, Jesus said the only sign I want to give you one more, he says. Only one. And it would be the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So Jesus would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth with the ramifications that on the third day, he's coming out just like Jonah came out. You know, there he is. (laughs) And Jesus did come forth on the third day in the resurrection, thus validating all his claims. It's the great super sign that he gave to his worst critics. They said, we got to make sure he doesn't come out on the third day. Let's make the guard secure. Do everything possible. Not coming out. Oh, yeah, he's coming out. He came out. Second, the resurrection declares Jesus to be Lord God, just as he claimed in his earthly ministry. We read in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. It clearly shows us who he is as the son of God. And third, the resurrection shows that the sacrifice of Jesus for sin has been fully accepted by God. You know, the veil rent into from top to bottom, affirmed it. And then the resurrection further verified it. The concept is affirmed in the word propitiation in the New Testament. The word propitiation means satisfaction. God was satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus for sin. And the resurrection approved it. 
Romans 4.25, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. Well, the empty tomb and the risen Lord go together. The truth of the risen Lord became the cornerstone of apostolic preaching. This changed everything. This was the focal point of Peter's message on the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church in Acts chapter 2. It is the focal point throughout the entire book of Acts, which is a history of the first 30 years of the early church age. It is at the heart of Paul's great gospel treaty, as seen in Romans 10.9. Well, as I wrap up this message on the resurrection this morning, I want to share with you that, that classic, <laughs> that classic uh, piece that was stated by Pastor S.M. Lockridge called, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's asleep and Judas is betraying, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter's denying, but they don't know that Sunday's a coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns. But they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirit burdened. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world's winning. People are sinning. And evil's grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nail my Savior's hands to the cross. They nail my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raise him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know. It's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death is won. Sin is conquered. And Satan's just a laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard. And a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It's only Friday. Sunday's a coming. Yeah, that's true. It's Friday. But Sunday's coming. But let me add an addendum. It was Friday. But now it's Sunday. It's Sunday. And up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. It's Sunday, and the tomb is empty. It's Sunday, and the angels are at the tomb. It's Sunday, and the stone is rolled away. It's Sunday, and the soldiers are shaking like dead men. It's Sunday, and the women are filled with fear and great joy as they run to bring the good news. It's Sunday, 
And Jesus appears with the greeting, Rejoice! It's Sunday, and the followers of Christ fall at his feet and worship. We are here today because it's Sunday. Ever since the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday, believers in the risen Christ have been meeting on Sunday. You know, I like to call it Sunday. That is S-O-N day. Could we get a movement to change it? For, our, for us, it's ever sun, S-O-N, sun day. You see, the Muslims are the Friday people, as they're called, because Friday is their key day of worship. The Jews are the Saturday people, as they worship on the Sabbath. But for us Christians, we are the Sunday people, as we meet every Sunday in honor of our risen Lord. My brethren... It's Sunday. Let us worship. Let's stand together and sing and worship together.